This is Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. This is the first episode of this podcast, and I'm excited. I'm glad you could join me. Here, I'll be engaging the intersection of race, culture, and theology. You'll be listening to guests over this time that we have this podcast who are either established, respected, or emerging voices. But I think they're important voices, whether you've heard of them or not, whether they're famous or not. I think they're important voices on issues of race, culture, theology, or some combination of of the three. And since this is the first episode of Intersections, I want to introduce myself um, to those of you who do not know me and give just a little background about me, which I think will give necessary context for my perspective on the issues uh, that are at this intersection of race, culture, and theology. Well, I've been a pastor as of September 2020. I've been a pastor for almost 13 years full-time in the Los Angeles area. Three years prior to that is when I first got into a pastoral role um, at my church with a few friends. We co-led a Bible study, and we were in a pastoral role uh, to our friends, and it was great. And that's where I got the call to ministry full-time. And it's been about 13-plus years now that I've been a pastor. Uh, I'm an author. My first uh, publication, first solo project, Open Wounds, is set to be released in February 2021. I've written, co-written some books in the past. Um, this is my first solo project. I'm excited about it. This book is a corresponding book to a documentary I produced this past year with my friend who directed it, L. Michael Lee. It's a short film called Open Wounds, same name as the book. So I'll tell you a little bit about, a little bit about the, the book and the, the film. My grandfather was murdered in 1953. I'm from Georgetown, South Carolina. We call it the Low Country. If you're not familiar with Georgetown, it's midway between Myrtle Beach and Charleston, right on the water, right on the coast. So the story tells my grandfather's murder. It talks about the injustice surrounding that, not just the fact that he was shot and killed, but to this day, his death certificate has a lie on it. I'll let you get the book. And I'll let you watch the film to hear more details about that. I won't give it all away. But there was injustice that my family had to endure. And because of that, the book also leads into this idea of intergenerational or some would say transgenerational trauma. And I want people to understand that. Oftentimes people think that, I hear people say, well, why don't we just forget about the past and move on? Well, you can't divorce yourself, ourselves, from history. We are living out the legacy of our past. There are many things in our past that will explain why we are today the way we are. And we have to learn from that. But there's also things that our bodies can't forget. Whether it's in one person's life or over the course of generations, there are things that our bodies, stories that our bodies carry um, from trauma. And so I want to introduce people to that that concept of intergenerational trauma and understand how racial tragedy or really any tragedy, but particular to this story, racial tragedy has intergenerational effects. The story also talks about systems and structures that perpetuate racial disparities and injustices. So I invite you to watch the film. 
It's a 40-minute short film. You can go to openwoundsdoc.com. You click on the link that says documentary. It takes you to where you need to, to watch the film. It's on demand. And um, it's gotten a great response. Everywhere we've shown it, we've screened it virtually. We've screened it live. And it's gotten a tremendous response. So I invite you to, uh, to watch the film. And I'll keep you updated. If you keep listening, I'll keep you updated on the release of the book come February 2021. I'm also a guest chaplain for college and professional sports teams. I'd like to give a shout out to my Dallas Cowboys. I've had the pleasure of doing chapel for the Cowboys for three or four years at their training camp out here in California. So that's been a, a joy for me to be able to speak into the lives of these professional athletes and these college athletes to mentor in some way, shape or form and build relationships with them. And last but not least, I'm a doctoral student pursuing a PhD in Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary, major in Christian ethics, minor in theology and culture. So you can kind of see where culture, theology, and race come into play. And this intersection of race, culture, and theology is something that I'm passionate about. Several reasons. Arguably, racism or racialization of society is the most dehumanizing, destructive, and divisive human construction we know of. We can study and look at colonialism of the African continent, South American continent, this continent that we're on. We can look at slavery. Actually, we would start with genocide of native people that this nation was built on this, this idea, this, this social, this human construction of race and racism. The nation was built on it. The genocide of native, native people, then the enslavement of Africans as the original form of capitalism that generated white prosperity in this country. That was the foundation of this nation. And most people of color that I know, especially African-Americans, will tell you racism is not something we can simply ignore. It is a reality that we must navigate and continue to fight really daily. This is a reality. We live in a racialized society. You can't just wish something away. You can't just ignore it, close our eyes and our ears and think that it's going to go away as if we're post-racial. That is not the case. So I'm passionate about Speaking on this issue, I think it's divisive. I think it's destructive. I think it's still dehumanizing. Not I think, I know. And you'll hear me use this term interchangeably or these two terms interchangeably. Racism and white supremacy. You'll hear me use them interchangeably, but I'm going to make a distinction in just a second. Racism and, and white supremacy have had a, a profound impact on my family, just like it has on many African Americans and other people of color. And so I've mentioned about my, my grandfather being killed in 1953, and that's essentially what the book and what the film is about. But I, my great-grandfather, 20 years before my grandfather, my grandfather on my father's side was killed in 1953, but 20 years prior to him, on my mom's side, her grandfather, when my grandmother was two years old, her grandfather, her father was killed as well. I had uh, an uncle in the military who was jumped He's a brilliant man. They say he was in he was in the army. They say he was jumped. Story goes that he was jumped by an officer or officers 
I don't know if he was in his sleep. I don't know what the case was, but he was beaten and he left the army with PTSD and not from being at war for that incident. This is a man who came home and attempted to kill his mother and did not realize it until he was sitting in a jail cell and wanted to know why, why was I here? He eventually he killed his brother, uh, one of my other uncles. I had another uncle who was in the military. He too was jumped by white soldiers. Fellow white soldiers jumped him. He left and has since been diagnosed with PTSD. When I was a kid, the first time I realized that my blackness was a bad thing to, to, to some people. You know, you watch movies, you watch films, you read books, but when it happens to you, it becomes very real. I might have been 12, 11, 12, maybe 13 at the most, when a, a white woman didn't want to touch my hand. And there's more to that, but she didn't want to touch my hand, and I learned later that there were many other African Americans that went to that store that they had the same experience. She would smile and take the money from her, her white customers and she would speak with them and as soon as they walked away and, and we stepped up to, to pay for our food, our candy or what have you, her face would turn to stone almost. And she would never, you would hold your hand out, she would take your money, but when you held your hand out to get your change back, she would either put the change on the table, on the counter, beneath your hand, slide it over to you she wouldn't even look at you. She wouldn't smile. She wouldn't. She would barely say a word to you, or she would hold her hand high above yours and she would drop the change in your hand. She did not want to touch my hand, and it was the first time that I realized, wow, there's something about my blackness that people actually think is bad. Then, fast forward. In my 20s, from 18 to about 28, 29 years old, being racially profiled. Racially profiled in a questionable neighborhood, going to visit a family member while I was home from college. Being profiled, walking in my own neighborhood in another state in Maryland some years later, walking in my own neighborhood to the bus stop. Same bus stop I walk to every morning. And all it took, we, we call them Karens today. I think they call the guys Kevins today when they make a phone call because they suspect a black person is up to something or they feel threatened and they make this, this, this phone call, 911, to the cops. Well, that happened to me in the 90s, the late 90s. I a, a white guy apparently didn't recognize me in the neighborhood. I, be, I lived there for two years up to that point. In that neighborhood, walked up the corner to the bus stop. And he called the cops on me. And I won't go into the details, but the cop finally came over and, and, and pulled up and pulled me over as I'm walking back to my house. I had missed the bus. He thought I was up to something. Fast forward to New York, living in New York, same thing, riding in my own neighborhood with a friend and got pulled over for no reason. And, and each, each time it intensified. And that last time is when the police officer let me know that he was in power and I, he could do whatever he wanted to do with me. He could make up whatever he wanted to make up. and There's nothing I could do about it. And when you experience those things, and that for me, it was only three times, and I know people who experience it more than that. But you got my story multiplied by millions of black and brown people. I've been threatened twice by white men 
since I've been in Los Angeles. I've almost been hit by a car deliberately. He wasn't driving extremely fast, but he, he wasn't slowing down. I didn't see him. And he almost hit me within inches of, and did not, did not bother to stop to let me clear coming out of the grocery store. He almost hit me. And so here I am, a pastor about to get in a fight in a grocery store parking lot because this man almost hit me. He knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And then got out of the car and tried to bait me into punching him. And it took a black woman who happened to be standing by and a young white guy who happened to be standing by seeing the same thing. They saw The white guy saw the whole thing. And if I had hit this man, who do you think would have gone to jail? Whose word would they have taken? And there, I, I can give you countless stories being passed over for promotions in, in a job after you have uh, trained your white counterpart came in after you, you trained him and they don't even bother to ask you if you're interested in the job that you, you trained him. You were there longer than him. And at the, at the job, you, I could argue, I could make the argument that I was better at my job than he was got passed over for, for promotion. I mean, the, I can go, I can go over and over and over again with different, scenarios every year of my life there's not a year that passes by there's barely a month that passes by where there's something that's not blatant but that's not even the, the main thing that I want to talk about in, in regards to racism and I'll get back to that in just a second but I'm also passionate as I'm passionate about racism I'm also passionate about theology and faith because it is through the lens of theology through the study of scripture the convictions born out of my faith and growing up in the black church tradition that I want to ultimately frame the issues and come up with solutions. I love learning from the civil rights era. I love learning from those men. We just lost John Lewis recently. I love learning from their lives, their sacrifice. I want to honor them with my life. So I want to continue their legacy and make their, what they taught and what they witnessed and modeled for us. I want it to be relevant today. So I follow the leaders and read their, their work and watch their, their films and whatnot of civil rights movement, especially Dr. Martin Luther King. Here's my hope. My hope with this podcast, not just this episode, but all the episodes following, is that you will be informed, you will be challenged, you will be inspired to not only learn more, but to ultimately be moved to action. So I hope that this episode gets you stirred up. I hope that the following episodes get you stirred up. That you want to be a part of the solution. Someone said this and it moved me. And um, I share this with people. Generations from now, if you have grandchildren or maybe you will soon have grandchildren. And your grandchild asks you, grandma, granddad or whatever name they're going to call you. What did you do back then when all this was going on? What do you want to be able to tell them? What did you do? Did you post your hashtag BLM Black Lives Matter after you saw a video when black folks have been crying out for decades that something's wrong? 
Did you attend a protest, took some pictures and posted it to show that you are, you get it? What, have you, what, did you, what do you want to be able to tell your grandkids when they ask the question, what did you do back then when all this was going on? What story, what narrative do you want to tell? So that's who I am. I'm passionate about what I believe has been divisive, destructive, dehumanizing. What I know to have impacted, to have ravaged my family and impacted my life tremendously. Race, this construction of race. I want to be able to, to speak to these issues. That's why I'm passionate about it. But I'm also passionate about my faith. I don't believe just for the sake of believing. I believe because it's supposed to be a part of the solution. You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. The following is a trailer to the documentary short film, Open Wounds. I have a story to tell, a story of pain, of loss, of gain, of cost, the story of trauma, the drama of birth and new birth, lost and found self-worth. Before Emmett Till, there was Nate Allen, my grandfather. His body found face down, floating in the Sampit River, at the hands of a racist pulling a rifle's trigger. In this story, I gave racism a name. I call him Cain. Since he rendered my grandfather unable to speak the truth about what happened on that river in the low country, home of the Gullah speaking Geechees that raised me. But the voice of his blood cries out from the earth. And the question is, who's listening? You can view Open Wounds right now at openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation. So I want to address just a couple of things that came up in the news uh, recently involving race and law enforcement or race and politics. There was a shooting in Compton, California, just a couple of weeks ago from the time of recording this, this, this podcast. Let me say clearly, let me make it very clear. Two officers sitting in the car, someone coming up to them, ambushing them and just firing, trying to kill them. Fortunately, they did not die. They are expected to survive. This is evil. It's egregious, it's cowardice, it's unacceptable. Make no mistake about it, no one should condone this or cheer this on, although there are some who, who are. This is not the way. And I don't even believe, I don't even really believe this person was doing this. This is not the way to respond to racial injustice. Which I don't even believe that this person was trying to respond to racial injustice. I think... This is just my opinion that this was likely someone that was just, just angry at the cops. 
Maybe they have a history. Maybe they're just that relationship, which in many neighborhoods, not just neighborhoods, just with the black community in general, it's not the best. It's not the healthiest. It's not, there's not a trust between the two. When you've experienced, and, and there are people who experience far worse than I have. It's not just about black folks being killed. It's about being profiled. It's about being falsely accused. It's about being criminalized, not given the benefit of the doubt like my white brothers and sisters. But this is not the way to respond. Matter of fact, it actually undermines the efforts of people who are really trying to do the work. And there are people who are quick to want to put black people or Black Lives Matter in that category. That's why I said this person wasn't really trying to respond to racial injustice. Because that won't do it. But here's what I really want to respond to. I want to make it clear that that was wrong. More than wrong. It was horrific. And we should be just as angry about this as we are about any other senseless murder, to be honest. I'm not condoning this. But here's what I want to respond to. Well, let me, let me say this. I have friends, I have young men. My, one of my best friends is a police officer. I want him to go home to his family. I have young men of all races, black, Asian, white, Latino, that I've mentored who are police officers. I want them to go home to their wife and their children, their wives and their children. But I want to respond to the comments by some of my white friends and strangers on social media who have been so quick to respond by saying, where are all the people who are angry and, and vocal about racism now? Why are they so silent now? And here's what's interesting about that. It sounds as if they couldn't wait to say it. Like they couldn't wait for the opportunity to point out, to point back. See, see? And it makes me think, even after you may have posted Black Lives Matter, even after you may have, have said what you may, you, you didn't like what you saw, uh, the cop was wrong, the cop that killed George Floyd should go to, 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 to prison, the, the, the white men that killed Ahmaud Arbery should be arrested. You may have said those things, but you came right back and was ready to jump on this opportunity. And here's what was not said. I'm angry that people are silent about this. But, man, now I know how they feel. I've never heard my white friends or strangers say that. I've never heard them say, I never heard them get out of themselves for a moment to think, man, this is what black and brown folks have been saying all along. And I say black and brown not to leave out my Asian brothers and sisters, native people. But this is what people of color have been saying all along. Why are you silent? Not ever thinking that. Here's, here, here's why it's, it's the problem. Because the killing of black, the senseless and authorized killing of black people 
And if we want to go back to, to the beginning, to native people, black people going back 401 years, native people going back further than that, further than that. We've been crying out and saying this for centuries. So how far do we go back to make the comparison? The second thing, you best believe if some for some reason this guy gets away with it, and I hope he doesn't, Justice, will, at the very least, will be pursued vigilantly. You, they're going to pursue with everything they have to catch this person. That is not what happens when a black person is killed. By a white person. I'm not even limiting it, limit, limiting it to... Law enforcement, I'm saying by a, when a white person kills a black, it's, or, or just when a black person dies, when a brown person dies, when a person of color dies. I'm not saying never, but you can't compare the, 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 the passion that you see in you, versus when you don't see, where you don't see it. You can't compare the two. Yet both are wrong. Both should have you fired up. Last point. This may offend some people, but when I go, if I sign up to go in the army, I'm signing up knowing that there's a possibility that we might go to war and I might get deployed. And if I get deployed and I'm in, at war, there's a possibility I don't come back home. I know that when I sign up. When I think about the fires, over 3 million acres burned in California this year in 2020. If I sign up to be a firefighter, I know that there's a risk that I could be burned severely or possibly lose my life in a fire. I know that there's a, because I'm, I'm signing up for that. If I want to play football, I have an uncle who died of CTE, complications of CTE, I should say. He was a Heisman candidate in 1971 for Michigan State, Big Ten MVP, one of my sports heroes, Eric Allen, played Canadian Football League. And later in his life, the last seven years of his life, he started to see the symptoms, losing his balance, falling. They thought it was vertigo, wrong diagnosis. Turns out he had a head injury. At the end of his life, he was a quadriplegic. He couldn't move at all it was heartbreaking but like every football player when he played the game he knew that there was a risk of mild injuries minor injuries or severe injuries you know that when you sign up when I walk outside of my door I didn't sign up to be profiled to be to have surveillance to be criminalized to possibly be shot and killed because of my skin color. I didn't sign up for that. And so you can't, you can't just be so quick to compare two situations. They're both wrong. Let me say it again. 
both wrong. But you can't compare those two because when we talk about black folks being killed, we're not just talking about one incident or one event. We're talking about one of a history, a lineage. And that's what people aren't getting. That's why you cannot compare the two. There is a history going back 401 years. And actually longer than that, when you go back to the, the Middle Passage, they were dying before they got here. A history. When we see that black body, that's what we're angry about. Yes, we're angry about that one individual that shot and killed, but we're angry, we're crying out, we're, 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 we're loud, we're voicing history. We're talking about a history of it. We're not divorcing George Floyd from Rodney King's beating, from Emmett Till, from my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, from Medgar Evers, from Martin Luther King. We're not even divorcing George Floyd and, and Aubrey and Trayvon. We're not divorcing them from the, the, the thousands upon thousands of falsely accused African-American men and women, black and brown, who make up so much of the prison population, the new Jim Crow, they call it. We're angry because of that, too. We're not divorcing those. And that's what people that's why you cannot just be so quick to say to point event for event. And this is why I have a problem. I have a problem with people who focus on an event and try to jump to compare that and, and, and to, to, to what's happening with what, what black folks are, are, are talking about or, or angry about or upset about. Tired about. Grieving. This is why I'm frustrated, because racism is not just about an event. It's not just about that thing that you saw happen. And so it tells me that they don't really understand what we're angry about, what we're grieving. They don't understand. Let me say it one more time. The shoot, I hope they catch the man, the person who tried to kill those police officers. And I hope that he's brought to justice. Point blank. Because I, for every time a police officer gets shot, I think about my best friend back home. And I got several friends who are police officers who are in law enforcement. So let me make that real clear. I'm not hedging on that. But it's not, you can't compare. You can't start to point event for event and compare like that. It's not even close. This country was built off of the enslavement. White folks prospered off of enslavement of African Americans and that, so that, that, that prosperity was protected and sustained by the killing of African Americans. Black Wall Street. Lynching. Particularly lynching Soldiers coming back from the war, black soldiers coming back from the war, who now felt like they were equal to white folks. Reconstruction, 
where there was a glimmer of hope, lynching, Ku Klux Klan got started. That's the history. That's why we cannot just talk about racism. It sounds like when people are jump to, to jumping so quickly to, to, to point out this, see, see, where are they now? Why aren't they angry now? They're looking for something to counter the narrative of Black Lives Matter. Deep down, that's what's really happening. I'm waiting for the person to say, man, now I know how, how you feel. I know how you feel now, Phil, when you talk about the silence. Because I'm angry that, that people aren't crying out like this on social media, but I had to stop and think about, wow, this must be what people of color have been talking about. I got a little bit ahead of myself and I said, you can't just talk about racism because white supremacy really is the issue. White supremacy is what is the, 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 the source, the origin where this idea, this invention of race came from. Race. This human construction had to come from some ideology. And it was white supremacy. And this invention of race developed into a system that orders and organizes society based on ancestry, physical features, or ethnic background. Racism. White supremacy invented race, developed into racism, the system. And it is this racism or this racialization that orders and organizes a society that because of white supremacy, prioritizes, prizes, centralizes white bodies, white perspectives, white thought, white ideas, and white scholarship. And then, it's not just certain parts of society, it is systemic, which means it affects the whole of society. It touches every part of society. It infects society through laws, policies, practices, and cultural messaging in blatant and subtle ways. Matter of fact, it's built into the fabric of the whole society. That's what systemic racism is. That's what we have to be talking about. White supremacy, the origin, the ideology, the way of being, seeing the world, ordering the world, particularly U.S. society invented race and developed into a system we call racism and we live in this racialized society that prioritizes and centers white fill in the blank and this leads me to my last point and i'm going to close with this i'm not going to talk much about this i'll probably discuss it more in a, in a future podcast uh, we talk about systemic racism S systemic racism is the very thing that the president of the u.s of the united states and the attorney general recently believe does not exist history says that's a lie statistics currently says that a lie that's a lie and thousands matter of fact millions of testimonies of people of color say that that's a lie that it doesn't exist and they downplay racism even as far as attorney general Barr as far as dismissing or downplaying the killing of unarmed black people 
while at the same time, they try to highlight black-on-black crime. But here's the issue with that. I never hear them say anything about white-on-white crime. I never hear it. I never hear them say anything about white-on-white crime. They only, t- they only highlight the killing of black people when it's black people killing black people. If that was such an issue, then you should be funding the people in the communities that have been trying to fight in our communities, trying to stop violence in our communities for decades. We're not silent on it. I know people in it. There are organizations, almost like like mom and pop organizations, if they're even organizations, they may just be individuals, but they've been trying for decades to stop violence, stop drugs, stop this, stop that, and they don't get funded they don't get the support. If, if they really are concerned about black-on-black crime, then start to help fund some of these organizations that, are trying to, that have been trying to do the work for decades. Systemic, it, it, systemic racism is from the lowest ranks to the highest offices and the highest positions of authority in this country. And I'm going to say this. We will never treat what we do not properly diagnose. Just like when they said that my uncle had vertigo. That was wrong. We will never treat what we do not properly diagnose. And we won't diagnose what we refuse to fully acknowledge. We have not been honest. And that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. I want to have honest, hard conversations. And make no mistake about it, if you know anything about me, I'm not just trying to throw stuff out there and condemn anybody. My end goal and everything I do is solidarity. And I use that word for a reason. Not just unity, not just kumbaya, but the solidarity that says I stand with you. The solidarity that is in the very gospel message that I preach, that I believe in. In my faith, My Lord, my God, displayed solidarity with humanity, with all of humanity on that cross. cross, When I wear my cross, that cross is a representation of, of solidarity. That a man would die on behalf of. And so we are called to stand with those who are oppressed against entities, systems, social structures, laws, policies, people that attempt to oppress them. We're not united without solidarity. If you're not willing to stand with me against an entity that is set up against me, then why would I believe you love me? Why would I believe that we're united I wouldn't. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate those of you who have listened to this podcast. I look forward to to doing this more and more and more. You have been listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. But before I go, let me remind you of my my film, Open Wounds. You can view it at openwoundsdoc.com. Click on the button that says documentary, follow the instructions. 
And stay tuned for my book, soon to be released, February 2021, of the same name, Open Wounds. And you can go to openwoundsdoc.com, get on the email list to stay updated on the book release and signings and future film screenings. Thank you very much for meeting me at Intersections. I hope our paths cross again soon.